0: It is great to see you. Are you enjoying the weather? I mean, Michigan is showing off. I met with a guy yesterday. He was in from San Diego, and he was like, dude, is this the nicest place in the country to live? And I said, yes, it is. Hmm. So anyway, yeah, right. Uh, Just leave by Monday. Anyway... Yeah! Uh, anyway, a welcome, a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time, maybe you, or maybe you came for Easter and we convinced you to come back, which if that's you, we're just really excited you're with us. Uh, it's a great day to jump in at Keystone because today we're get, beginning a new series that'll lead us right up to Memorial Weekend called Roots. And the series is all about something I think about a lot, honestly, as, as a church leader. It's like what Jesus had in mind for his church? Like, what were the roots of this movement? What did the Jesus movement look like in the first years of its existence? And I, and I wanna do this with you, kinda as we head into spring, I wanna remind you all of who we are as a community and what we're doing here. And so, to that end, to kinda get us going and get you thinking, I wanna ask you a question. And it goes like this What do you think about when you think about church? And this is true, especially if you grew up in church. So, what, what do you think about? When you think about church, what sorts of things come to mind? And the reason I want to start there is because if my experience is any indication, what you think about when you think about church really isn't much at all like what the first followers of Jesus thought about when they thought about church. Seriously, because, and this may surprise you, when the first Christians thought about church, they didn't think about a building. And, and we know that because, and this is deep, I thought about this a lot this week, uh, In the beginning, the church didn't have any buildings. They didn't have any traditions or organs or ornamental candles or choirs with robes or potlucks or even like fancy professional religious leaders dressed in long robes holding extremely large Bibles, (laughs) right? None of that stuff. In the beginning, the church was, it was just a group of people who came together because they came to believe something had happened that had changed everything, Namely, they came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and moreover, they believed that there were practical implications of the resurrection. Like because Jesus rose, they could trust that he was who he said that he was, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It also authenticated all of his teachings. So I mean, as hard as it is for us to imagine in the beginning, the church, those first groups of followers of Jesus, were, it, was, it was simple And it was powerful as it beautifully embodied its calling to carry the invitation to experience God's grace to the world. And that reality, if we're honest, you know, raises a fascinating question. Again, especially if you grew up in church, like how did we get from something so simple and so powerful and so impactful to, uh, well, what many of us have experienced? When did church get so complicated and confusing and what in the world happened to the emphasis on grace. Well, for the next few weeks, as we explore the roots of the church, my hope is to answer at least some of those questions for you. You'll understand some of what I think went wrong and what I'm convinced it looks like to do it right, or at least writer. Thank you. I know that's not a word. Save your emails, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. All right. So to get us going uh, towards some of those answers, I want to show you the first time that we're aware of that Jesus used the word church. Because if we're going to ask, you know, what did he have in mind for the church, let's take a look at how he introduced the word to his first followers. It happened midway through his time with those original 12 disciples. And he took them for a walk uh, from the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, where they were spending a lot of their time and where they were living, walked them 60 miles north to a town called Caesarea Philippi. And, and when they got to Caesarea Philippi, he asked them, you know, who do people say that I am? Like, what's the word on the street? And, and they, the, the disciples responded to Jesus that, you know, some people suspected he was a reincarnated Old Testament prophet, which I know raises all kinds of questions, but that's what people were saying, right? And some other people thought that he might be a man named John the Baptist who would come back to life. And then Jesus turns the question on his disciples. He said, that's what they think. What do you think? You spent more time with me than anybody. Who do you say that I am? And in response to that question, Peter, who was definitely the oldest and definitely the most impulsive disciple, looked at Jesus and he says, oh, yeah, well, you, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, Peter says to Jesus, you're the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word. You're you're the one that the Jewish prophets have written about, that the Jewish people have been waiting for for like hundreds of years. That's who you are. And Jesus looks back at Peter and he says, you're right. And then he said, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my, and here's our word, church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, Jesus looks at Peter and really all of his disciples and says, listen, I'm going to build my church on the proclamation that you just made of who I am. And when my movement begins, nothing will be able to stop it. And I get fired up every time I I read that passage, and and it's just awesome. But, But again, what did Jesus mean when he used the word church here? What did he have in mind? And in order to answer that question, I need to remind you of something that's really easy to forget, namely that the original accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't originally written in English. They were written in Greek because that's what people were able to read back then. And, and as it turns out, the Greek word translated church here, well, it, it's interesting. It wasn't originally a religious term. It was a word that referred to a political gathering of people in ancient Greece, especially ancient Athens. And in Greek, the word for church is ekklesia, and it's best translated gathering or congregation. Now, if you think about it, that's incredible. Like 2,000 years ago, when Jesus described his church, he essentially co-opted a common term from the Greco-Roman culture to describe the organizational structure of the communities that would carry his mission and his message to the world. In other words, when Jesus thought about his church, he imagined gatherings of people all over the world who would celebrate and proclaim who he was, what he did, and what he taught. I'm telling you, like in the beginning, Jesus intended his church to be simple and beautiful and authentic and hopeful and again, gracious, and that's, that's great. But, but then again, the question, what happened? How did things get so complicated? And as it turns out, what happened over time is that an unfortunate transition occurred that impacted what people thought about when they thought about church. And again, this happened in ancient times. The church, which Jesus intended to be a movement, became an institution, And as the church spread into Europe, this unfortunate transition was affirmed by a rather tragic mistranslation of the Greek word ekklesia. So so here's kind of what happened. When the Greek word ekklesia was translated into the German language, it was rendered kirch. And kirch doesn't mean gathering or congregation. Kirch means the Lord's house. It can actually be used to describe any religious building, not just Christian ones. And, and so instead of describing a religious gathering, the word kirch denotes a religious gathering place, like a building. And that's a big difference. I mean, if you think about it, the concept of church as a place for a religious gathering and not the gathering itself is a not-so-subtle throwback to the temple culture of the ancient world. And so it happens, as soon as people begin to think of church as a holy building like a temple, the Jesus movement quickly devolved into an organization. Said differently, as soon as everyone came to think of churches as holy buildings, everything changed. And and that makes sense if you think about it. I mean, whoever controlled the holy buildings controlled the church. And whoever controlled the holy buildings eventually kind of controlled the Bible, and whoever controlled the buildings in the Bible kind of ended up controlling the people and profoundly influencing the government. Like all that to say, over time, what Jesus intended to be a movement organized by gatherings of people that would carry his message of grace to the world, it sort of devolved into an insider focused, hierarchical, at times immoral institution that had only a peripheral connection to what Jesus intended. First church. And I'm telling you, at that point in history, it really seemed like the church had irrecoverably lost the organizational blueprints that Jesus had drafted for it. But then, um, early in the 16th century, something fascinating happened. There was an Englishman who you may have heard of by the name of William Tyndale, and he had been trained as a scholar in linguistics, and, and he came to believe that the average person really should have access To the Bible, and in his case, the Bible in English, if they were gonna understand what Jesus had in mind for his church. And so he set out to translate the New Testament from the original Greek into English. So again, his people could read the Bible themselves. And that sounds great, but what happened is the leaders in the Church of England became aware of and concerned about what Tyndale was trying to do. And so they attempted to intervene, as in, read, arrest him. And he fled to Germany where he finished his translation, began to print copies of the Bible into English, and then you'll love this, smuggle them back into England. And as a result, for the first time, the average English citizen was able to read and understand the Bible for themselves. And eventually Tyndale was betrayed by a friend and brought back to England where he was tried and convicted of heresy, but it was kind of too late. The Bible was out. And almost immediately, uh, the church began to lose some of its influence. And as a, There's a fascinating piece to this story that I, that I found when I was preparing. Historians record that during his trial, Tyndale made an incredibly powerful statement to the leaders of the Church of England. He, he looked at them and he said this. He said, if God spares my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. For some reason, I just love that, right? Yeah. I mean, Tyndale looks at these religious leaders and confronts them. He's like, listen, you're manipulating the Bible and the people and even the government. And so, so again, this is, this is so powerful, but, but it does raise a question. Like, what exactly did Tyndale translate that was so threatening to the church? And as it turns out, it had to do with that little Greek word, ekklesia. We're like, that's why you're telling me this story. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so here's the thing. Tyndale didn't translate ecclesia as the Lord's house. He translated it as gathering or congregation because that's what it means. Church is a word Jesus intended to be used to describe a gathering of people and not the physical structure in which the people gather and so it's a, it's a subtle difference, but it's so profound in its implications. And with his translation, Tyndale was trying to return the church to its roots. He wanted the church to be what Jesus had intended it to be, a growing, multicultural, mission-centered, grace-filled movement of people who had come to believe in Jesus' resurrection And these people congregating together with one another, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the world. That's where this word church comes from. And and so now that said, with the rest of our time, what I want to do um, is sort of set up the rest of this series by, by briefly exploring with you the day when, in a very real sense, the church was born. So I want to give you a little... Context, and then I'll take you. And we're going to be for the rest of the series in the book Acts, A C T S. It was written by an early Jesus follower named Luke, who recorded kind of those early days of the Jesus movement. So here's kind of the setup for what I want to do today. Uh, following his resurrection on that first Easter Sunday, Jesus spent 40 days with his first followers. Before giving them some pretty strange instructions, he looks at them and he says, Okay, um, I want you to go and I want you to remain in Jerusalem. And wait, because in a few days, God is going to send supernatural power to you to empower you to be a new sort of people in the world, like a sacred people on a sacred mission. Jesus said it to his followers this way. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And and I'm fairly certain that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about here, but I'm very sure that they were excited. I mean, supernatural power from God would have seemed like an especially good idea given the reality that at this moment in history they were enemies both of the Jewish temple establishment and the Roman Empire. Like, everybody with power was sort of against them. So they would have loved the idea, but they would also have had a question for Jesus. Like, okay, we're going to wait. God sends supernatural power. What are we supposed to do with this supernatural power? And Jesus actually told them as he continues. He says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will be my witnesses. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to testify, not just to what you believe, but to what you've seen, and not just to the people in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus said this, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the city there in in Judea, which is sort of the the state or the county. Samaria would be the county sort of to the northwest, and then this, to the ends of the earth. And we can't know what they thought when Jesus said this, but I can guess. (laughs) I mean, here they are having a conversation with a man who Rome had crucified, who God had raised from the dead, and who the religious leaders hated. And when you think about it, I don't think any of these early followers, there were probably only around 100 of them at the time, I don't think any of them had been more than about 90 miles from the place where they were born. And Jesus looks at them and he says, listen, you're going to take my mission and my message and my teachings to the whole world Like, they wouldn't have been able to begin to comprehend the implications of what Jesus was saying. But nonetheless, as I imagine it, they smiled and nodded. Because when your resurrected rabbi says anything, you smile and nod. Just write that down. It's good to know, right? Yeah. And they stayed in Jerusalem for this power that Jesus had promised that would come. And Jesus returned to heaven. Well, a few days pass. And in the minds of the disciples, they're kind of uneventful days. But in Jerusalem, it's busy because the whole city is preparing for a feast called... Pentecost, and that was the annual celebration where the Jewish people would thank God for his provision for them, both physical provision through food and spiritual provision through the text. Um, And according to the Old Testament's law, all Jewish males were required to travel to Jerusalem to participate in Pentecost. And so, you know, practical implication, as the feast approached, the city would have been filling steadily with religious Jews from all over the world Tourists who, I think it's worth noting, would have been speaking all sorts of different languages along with Hebrew. And hold on to that. It it becomes important in just a moment. Anyway, when the day of Pentecost arrived, one of the authors of the New Testament, again, this Luke that I referred to earlier, recorded that those first followers of Jesus were in the Jewish temple when suddenly and without warning... All heaven broke loose, okay? He, he described it for us this way. He said, When the day of Pentecost came, the first disciples were all together in one place. Suddenly, he writes, A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. You say, how do we know it's the temple? The house is God's house. It's, it's the temple. He says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Luke goes on. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Yeah, because it's the festival, and God had told them to come. He says, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because, and here it is, each one heard them speaking in his own language. In other words, like in an instant each follower of Jesus was supernaturally empowered to fluently speak in languages that they had never studied. And they went throughout the temple complex and all over Jerusalem and began to tell Jewish people from all over the world in whatever language their audience could best understand what Jesus had done. I'm telling you the significance of this moment is almost impossible to overstate. Like the disciples have been empowered to do the very thing that Jesus had told them to do, to go and proclaim and to make disciples of all the nations. Well, I love what happens next because as Luke continues to tell us uh, what happened that day, Peter, again, the oldest and most impulsive disciple, stands up and gives the first sermon in the history of the church. And as a guy who does sermons a lot, it was a good sermon, I'm telling you right now, right? But he, So here's what Peter says, stands up there. The audience is completely enraptured because of all of this supernatural activity. And Peter stands up and he says, people of Israel, listen to this. He said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. He's like, everyone with me? Jesus, miracle guy, we're tracking. Excellent. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Oh, you thought that was something you did? No, God was involved in that. And you, with the help of, I should tell you, wicked men, hello, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And as I imagine it in this moment, everyone starts looking at their feet, right? Like, uh-oh, it hadn't been months since this had happened. It had just been days since this had happened. And many of the people who would have been there in the temple that day, you know, had personally heard Jesus teach and may have very well witnessed the crucifixion. And Peter goes on, he says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on Him And then he says this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. In other words, Peter says, okay, you've experienced the power. You've experienced the miracles. Something else is going on right now. But listen, we're not here to tell you what Jesus taught, and that's great. It will come. We're here to tell you what we saw. Jesus is alive again, which is fascinating if you think about it, especially if you were introduced to the church early, and a lot of us got this out of order. The first century Christianity wasn't initially built on Jesus' teaching First century Christianity was built by inviting people to embrace the reality of a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. That's the starting point of the Christian faith. And that's why Peter said we are witnesses to the fact that he was crucified and we are witnesses to the fact that he came back to life like not years ago, days ago. And then Peter continued. He says, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And Messiah was a politically charged term for them. They all knew what that meant, or at least they thought they did. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, what shall we do? It, it, it's like this was the day the church was born and on this day, people were filled with a dynamic, exciting, disorienting, overwhelming sense of wonder. Even though the church had no buildings, and the church had no money, and the church had no children's programming, or, or you know, they didn't have written accounts of Jesus' life. Heck, they didn't even have popcorn. Just throwing it out there, okay? Yeah. But on that day, what did they have? I would argue they had the most important thing of all, they had wonder. They had wonder of what God had done in and through Jesus for the world. And I'm telling you, on that day, people knew something that was easy for us to forget, that the church of Jesus was to be different than anything that came before it. It wasn't primarily to be about the construction of more religious buildings. Not that religious buildings are wrong, but it's like at its heart, the church is to be a multiplying gathering of people who carried a beautiful message that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God had invited all people everywhere into a reconciled relationship with him, like arms wide open, inviting the world to come home. By believing in this Jesus, anyone, anywhere could be adopted as a son or daughter of God and join the ranks of a new sacred people on a mission to change the world one life at a time. I mean, Peter actually said as much when the people listening to him asked him what they should do in light of this message. They're like, okay, uh, this is overwhelming in every way, and we need to do something to respond, and what do you want us to do? And here's what Peter says. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then look at this. This is awesome. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom our Lord God will call. And by the way, do you know who Peter was referring to when he said, All who are far off? That's us. That's like you and me. And 2,000 years ago, this was the promise. And this was Peter's way of saying that the church was going to be worldwide and the church was going to be unstoppable, like his generation may die off, but the momentum will continue. And the people there that day in the temple courts responded. They responded big. Look at this. Peter says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And that's incredible, especially as somebody who's been to Jerusalem now 10 times, there is not a lot of water in Jerusalem. If you've got 3,000 people to baptize, that's a big logistical challenge. I'm telling you, right? And if you think about it, these 3,000 people, I mean, this is so compelling when you think about it in terms of the resurrection. Any one of those people could have visited the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. They were, they were in the same city where it happened, where Jesus had been crucified. Nonetheless, when confronted with the wonder of the message Of the gospel, 3,000 people that day placed their faith in Jesus. And in the following days, they were immersed in water everywhere they could find some. The city of Jerusalem would have been completely turned upside down. Like thousands of people saying, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he was crucified, that he rose from the grave, and he was seen alive Again, it's impossible to overstate the significance of what happened that day. Friends, these are the roots of the church. These are our roots. It's stunning when you think about it for them, and it's stunning when you think about it for us. Because it wasn't just about what the church was intended to be. It was about the spirit that was going to empower the church to live into its mission And instead of the belief that the spirit of the God of the religion was going to live in a building, well, this new movement began with a very different sort of temple in mind. Uh, Consider Paul's words, an early pastor to early Christians living in Greece, uh, to a culture that would have been really, really familiar with sacred buildings. They were all over ancient Greece. Paul wrote the following. He says to these followers of Jesus, do you not know, and again, I don't think they knew, that's why he said that. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? Not not temples of stone, living temples. It's like Paul says to them, he's trying to encourage them to be who they're supposed to be in the world. He says, listen, don't you realize, don't you recognize that God has decided to make his presence in the world known, not through a building, but through a sacred People, like instead of a physical temple where people can look in order to learn what God is like, they are going to look at you. God has chosen to leverage you and a gathering of people like you who have placed your faith in Jesus to be his presence in the world, empowered by his spirit. And I'm telling you, that's what God wanted to do through them, and that's what God wants to do through you and me, if we've placed our faith in Jesus. Like ideally, in our world, in our community, hurting people should be able to look to see what God is like by experiencing us, our presence, our generosity, our grace, and our love towards them. When people want to know what God is like, they shouldn't look at a building. They should look at God's People, at followers of Jesus. And I'm telling you, it was that reality that absolutely confounded the Roman world. They had no way to process a group of people who after placing their faith in Jesus, pursued an other's first mindset. Rome was all about survival of the fittest, and this new community emerges with totally different priorities. Like, we're not here to build kingdoms for ourselves. We're here to build and advance God's kingdom. We're not here to to amass a fortune for ourselves. We're here to serve the world. And they were captivating, and they were compelling. And in fact, that's why the Roman Empire eventually, in mass, placed their faith in Jesus. It was a better world way to do life because it was a way that came from the creator and it was empowered by his spirit okay so before i let you go i just i got to do one one thing more I, I need to speak specifically to those of us who are followers of jesus because when i was reviewing this content this week i just i was very moved by the simple reminder that I get to be a part of a sacred gathering of people, that I don't just go to church or work for church. You know, I am the church and so are you. It's not buildings, it's, it's people. And what that means is that whether we realize it or not, God wants to do something through us. He desires to leverage our lives and our love to show others what he's like. He wants to do this at work and at home and in our city. And then every Sunday when people visit this community and every Sunday we have people visiting. If that's you, man, we are so honored that you're here and we're so thankful. But we want to be people that embody the sort of thing that Jesus had in mind for the communities that would carry his name. Because we are so overwhelmed with with what God has done for us. We want to, in thankfulness, be a part of what God wants to do through us Because I'm telling you, Jesus never intended his church to be a building you attend. The roots of the Jesus movement are a group of people who came to believe something unbelievable and undeniable that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, who came for us, who died for us, who was raised for us, and who desires to use us to work for positive change in the world as we reflect a little bit of his life in and through our lives. All right, we'll pick, it up, we'll pick it up there next week. Um, but for today, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. Um, and if you're new around here, uh, just a brief invitation. We'll have some volunteers under the screen to your left. And if you came into this place, you need someone to pray with you. We, we'd love to meet with you and remind you of, of your value and how much you're loved and, and just to pray over you. So if that's you, um, but for the rest of us, let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father. I can't even count the number of times that I have read those early chapters of Acts and I have never walked away from that experience not being moved by your vision, by your heart, by your provision for your church. May we be a community that embodies what you had in mind. May the light from this place and the love from this place shine into our city. And may people who are lost and hurting and searching find a home here and ultimately a home with you. Before today, for this moment, we we thank you and we bless you and we celebrate you and we love you. In the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part two of Roots.